what are my credentials? Okay, well, this, is, this talk is the science of Doctor Who. I am a scientist. I'm an academic. I'm an astrophysicist. And obviously, one of the big questions with time travel is, is it possible? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I can unequivocally say for you tonight, yes, it is. Welcome to Doctor Who on Target. A podcast where we discuss the target range of classic Doctor Who novelizations from the 1970s and 80s. Those long ago days where, if you missed Doctor Who on TV, you missed it forever. Unless, of course, you bought the Target novelisation. So, join us, jump aboard the TARDIS, set the time rotor for late 20th century Earth, and, with a wheezing, groaning sound, we'll discuss Doctor Who on Target. Welcome to Doctor Who on Target. Though this week there isn't going to be a lot of Target being discussed because I'm saving that up for next week in our special edition where we will be looking at the Target um, cover exhibition which is on at the Cartoon Museum in London at the moment and also for um, uh, my review of the the new Target re-releases and the audio books that the BBC have released there, which are, which are fabulous. But we'll be talking about those next week. But for this week, we have a special called The Science of Doctor Who, which is a presentation lecture given by Dr. Edward Gomez of Cardiff University. I went to see this recently and he came across as um, uh, a rather cool, fabulous guy, actually. And... Um, I was very impressed with the lecture. It was great fun. I mean, there aren't many places where you can go of an evening for free to hear about ice volcanoes, diamond volcanoes, uh, wormholes, uh, holding hands through a wormhole so that one person is in one universe, another in another uh, oh, it was just uh, there were some fabulous ideas being put forward there. One of my favourites, of course, is the Goldilocks Zone, which is about, well, you'll have to listen to the clip from Dr Gomez to find out what that is about. But if you could go and see one of his lectures, I highly recommend it. Um, he's obviously a huge Doctor Who fan, uh, has been since a child, and I think it's influenced him hugely in his scientific work. He has a very poetic turn of phrase, and uh, it, it, this lecture works really well, I think. Um, uh, we were presented with a TARDIS and a canine and um, some great presentations there from Doctor Who where he links some of the concepts and stories um, from Doctor Who into actual real scientific uh, knowledge. Uh, some very, very interesting things talked about there. Um, if you could, please go and visit him. Please 
tweet him. He's on Twitter, Dr. Edward Gomez, Cardiff University. Um, he also recommends uh, another site, which is theworldatnight.org, which is um, a great presentation of images of the sky at night, space, spiral clusters, galaxies, and so forth, which are really quite inspiring. Please listen. If you want to know what the Goldilocks zone is, if you want to know about wormholes, parallel universes, and perhaps even if you want to know about the physical effects of space on astronauts, will they one day transmutate into a huge blob? Mm, takes me straight back to the 1950s. Right, okay, here we go. Please enjoy these clips from Dr. Edward Gomez's show, The Science of Doctor Who, followed by uh, an interview afterwards. Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, it's always nice when uh, you get a round of applause before you've actually done anything except showed up. Um, when, when giving research seminars, they never applaud beforehand, so... Uh, uh, it's a very welcome change. So, um, one of the main things, or one of the main themes about Doctor Who that anybody, if you ask them in the street, what is Doctor Who about, they will say time travel. So I thought I'd tackle that. And obviously, one of the big questions with time travel is, is it possible? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I can unequivocally say for you tonight, yes, it is. Okay, now let's, this is a big topic, let's split it in two. Let's talk about uh, forwards time travel and then we'll talk about backwards time travel, okay? Forwards time travel, let's start that uh, first. Right, there are people on Earth today who are time travellers. Fact. Here is one of them. Sergei Krikalev, he is a time traveller. Sergei Krikalev spent quite a long time on the International Space Station, and he has travelled to the future. In fact, he's travelled 0.02 seconds into the future. Okay, that's not a huge amount, is it? But, I mean, you've got to start somewhere. Uh, baby steps and everything. So, in order to explain this a little bit more, we've got to now get serious. So, this is Einstein's field equations. Um, the, uh, the theory behind general and special relativity, okay? So there will be a test on this later. No, there won't be a test on this. Basically, what I want you to realize is that this is actually real science, but for the basis, for the, the, uh, the rest of this talk, you can think about it as wibbly-wobbly, tiny-winy stuff, okay? There, are, there is maths behind this, okay? And we'll talk a little bit about it now. In fact, let's do some maths. I need, for this next bit, I need two volunteers. And I was thinking that I'd ask for volunteers from the audience, but for this demonstration, I'll need two volunteers to be out in the middle of space um, without spacesuits, and that would take quite a long time to get you there, and, you know, it would be a little bit inconvenient for you and such. So I thought, who wouldn't we mind putting out in space? Daleks. Nobody cares. There was supposed to be a beautiful Dalek here with me today, but um, I hear that Panto goers uh, took a dislike to it. Poor Daleks. Anyway, so two Daleks. I was going to call them Dalek A and B, but then I remembered there were four Daleks that had names. Normally Daleks don't have names, but four of them had names. The Cult of Scarrow. Can anybody remember the name of the four 
Philalics. Okay, it's, it's a really tough question. Uh, sorry, Khan, yes, Dalek Khan. So Dalek Khan uh, had a bit of a bad end because he looked into the time vortex and went crazy. So he's not going to be a good choice. It was Dalek Sek who um, in the... Um, uh, in the Manhattan episode in the, uh, in the American Depression, um, jumped onto a person and became a man Dalek, so he's probably not suitable either. So that leaves two other Daleks from the cult of Scaro. So Dalek Thay and Dalek Jest. Okay, good, right. So we've got our subjects, we know who they are. Okay, so I'm gonna, now out in the, the wilds of space, away from any points of reference, I'm gonna get Dalek Thay towards, uh, move towards Dalek Jest at 10 uh, miles per hour. Okay? Now, because there's no points of reference, they're not going to accelerate smoothly. They're just going to go instantly. Dalek Thay is going to go instantly to 10 uh, miles an hour. So it will look like, so there we go, 10 miles an hour towards Dalek Jest. Doink. Now, Dalek Thay will see Dalek Jest approach him at 10 miles an hour, and Dalek Jest will see the opposite. So they will, their closing velocity will be 10 miles an hour. Okay, great. So, if both of them were to move, their closing velocity uh, at 10 miles an hour, their closing velocity would be 20 miles an hour. Okay, that's easy maths. Everybody can do that. That's good. Okay. So, what happens if we move faster? Okay, we're going to move significantly faster than the type of speeds that you can do uh, around Swansea. We're going to get Dalek Thay and Dalek Jast to move at 90% of the speed of light. So using the logic from uh, the previous example, you'd expect them to approach each other at uh, twice their individual velocity. So 180% uh, of the speed of light. So nearly twice the speed of light. But actually, that doesn't happen. The closing velocity is 99.45% of the speed of light because the universe plays a trick on us. The universe warps time for each one of these Daleks. So it slows down when they move very fast, because otherwise, uh, strange things would happen in the universe. Light, if you shone two light beams towards each other, weird things would happen. So we call this time dilation, but you can think of it as um, a space-time bubble that appears around everything that moves. And if you move to uh, a speed that's very, very close to the speed of light, your space-time bubble becomes more extreme. Your time slows down a lot more. And that's how Sergei Krikalev came to be a time traveller. He was on the International Space Station for over 800 days, but the International Space Station travels faster than we do here on Earth. Uh, the rotational speed of the Earth is about 1,000 miles per hour, but the space station is 17 thousand miles per hour. So he's moving 17 times faster than we are here on the Earth. Because he's moving faster, he gets a little space-time bubble around him. He's not moving as fast as the speed of light, uh, but you could have guessed that because he only moved into the future a very, very small amount of uh, time. Now that's not the only way that you can form space-time bubbles. So you can move very fast, but also everything with mass has a space-time bubble around them. Not, not only warping time, but warping space. 
we see this out in the universe. Uh, we have these weird things uh, called gravitational lenses when there's anything with a huge amount of mass. So what's, this is a beautiful picture from the Hubble Space Telescope here of a, a galaxy cluster. So each one of these things, with the exception of that, 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 and uh, that one. So there are four things with uh, cross hairs on them. Those are stars, those are close by. But everything else in this picture is a galaxy. Everything else is very much like the Milky Way. It contains hundreds of billions of stars. Now, if you think that the most massive thing in our solar system is our star, the sun, and each one of these things has hundreds of billions of them inside it. So the mass of each galaxy is going to be colossal. Now, you see that these galaxies here are in a cluster. They're grouped together. So as a whole, that thing has a huge amount of mass, and that is warping space and time, so much so that there are galaxies behind the galaxies that we can see here, which if the laws of physics obeyed the laws of common sense, you wouldn't be able to see. So these galaxies have something directly behind them. But we can see it because space is being distorted. You can see these arcs here. You see these uh, strange looking filaments. Those aren't things physically in space. Those are actually projections of those galaxies that are behind uh, this, this cluster of galaxies here that's, that's warping space. So that's a way that you can warp space. And actually, you can warp space by not only having something that's very massive, but having something that's very dense as well. Um, and we see this in a Doctor Who episode. Uh, so in The Impossible Planet, uh, Mayanna Beering uh, falls in towards a neutron star, uh, Croc Tor. Uh, you may remember the Impossible Planet and uh, the Satan Pit were uh, part, uh, a two-parter where there was uh, a planet that was hovering around uh, a black hole. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. So she falls out of the spaceship towards this very dense thing, this, uh, this black hole. And black holes are the densest things in the whole universe. So they warp space and time. They don't have to be very massive because they're very, very dense. So they warp space and time. Um, and there, if you had uh, a black hole close by and you stood very close to it, your time would slow down, very much like you traveling very close to the speed of light. So. Space and time, in that way, are linked. I want to show you this picture again. So I've now called Sergei Krikalev a space-time traveller instead of a time traveller. But I'm showing you this picture again because they're wearing the same outfit! So uh, maybe uh, David Tennant went on to the International Space Station on his off day. No. Okay. Right, so... That was forwards time travel. Okay, you're fairly comfortable with that now. A little bit of special and general relativity, great. Um, backwards time travel. This is a little bit more sticky. Okay, so I'm an astronomer. Uh, everything I look at in the universe, I'm looking back in time. When I look at light from the sun, uh, the light from the sun isn't instantaneous. It takes about eight minutes to get to the Earth. As you go further and further away, the light takes longer to get to us. And uh, that's just because the speed at which light travels is constant. 
you can think of it like um, sending a letter. So if you're sending a letter from the US to the UK, that letter will take a certain amount of time to get to you. Um, if you send a letter from somewhere in the UK to somewhere else in the UK, it will take a shorter amount of time. The distance that it has to go, or should, in theory, take a shorter amount of time uh, to get to you. So, um, now, the analogy with the letter isn't uh, great because the rate at which uh, the letter is travelling isn't constant, unlike uh, light. But going over that distance, the information was true when it set out. So if I write a postcard of my holidays and it arrives two weeks after I got back, you don't think, oh, Edward's enjoying his holidays now. You think, oh, two weeks ago he was enjoying his holidays. And that's exactly the same with light. So we're looking at um, snapshots of things in the distant universe. So this is the Crab Nebula. Astro Chinese astronomers saw this a thousand years ago uh, as a bright dot that lit up the, uh, the night and day sky. Um, it's a, the explosion of a star which has resulted in a very, very dense object. It's not a black hole, it's called a neutron star. Um, and this is the remains of what's left. But uh, this isn't a thousand years old. It's actually much, much older. The light took a long time to get to us. It's actually um, tens of thousands of years old because it's somewhere else in our galaxy. And the light took tens of thousands of years to get to us. But a thousand years ago is when it got to us. Okay, so that's a way that we can look back in time. How can we visit the past? Now, this is where things get a little bit shaky. Wormholes. You'll probably all have heard of wormholes. Now, I said that black holes curve space-time. They warp it. Now, what happens if... So this, this picture is a little bit misleading because what it's asking you to do is imagine that space, every bit of space around you, is actually flat. So instead of it being three-dimensional and solid, that it's flat. So if space were flat, like this, and you were to travel... If I was to travel from here back to Cardiff, uh, I think it was a straight line. And this is like this person travelling in a straight line on this uh, thing. It just happens to be folded. Now actually, I think I'm travelling in a straight line to go to Cardiff, but I'm not. I'm travelling along the Earth's surface, which is curved. I just don't notice that it's curved. And the same is here. Here we're seeing a person travelling from this side to this side. And from their perspective, they're travelling in a straight line. But actually, there's a curving in space, which is going behind the scenes, if you like, curving in a higher dimension, uh, a, a fourth dimension that's not time, maybe you can call it a fifth dimension, uh, that the universe may be curved in, in a way that we don't understand. Uh, but if you could do that, then that gives very, very interesting possibilities for time travel. The uh, astrophysicist Kip Thorne said that if you had a wormhole, and you make a wormhole, you make a wormhole in your living room, like you do. You have uh, two ends of it, and because you've made it, you've made it portable. Why not? And you keep one of them in your living room, and in the other one, you put them in your spaceship, which is parked outside, because everybody has one of those. And you pop in your spaceship, and you go and sit by a black hole. Not in a black hole, at a safe distance, but close by a black hole, so that you're in the gravitational field, so you're in the warped space-time and your time slows down. It doesn't slow down from your, by your perception, 
but from everybody else's, it does. You come back after a very short period, and a long period has passed on the Earth. But you've got this half of a wormhole with you. And because you've been in contact with this half of a wormhole all the time, when you look through it, you're looking back in time. You could put your hand through that wormhole for that whole journey, and I could have held my wife's hand for that entire journey that I'd made, of, say, a few days. But on Earth, a hundred years would have passed. So through the wormhole, everything's in the past. In reality, everything's in the future. And then you have a gateway into the past. Now, both ends of the wormhole, having done that journey, will carry on going in time. But that ends, that, that gives you an interesting possibility. Now, we can't make wormholes. We can't make this weird curving of space-time that you'd need. Or can we? There's a very, very strange effect called the Casimir effect. So this is um, a conducting but not charged ball. So it's a metal ball that doesn't have any charge on it. And it's resting on a set of scales. This is just a, a set of scales here, but it's very, very small, which is why it looks a bit funny. And above it, outside the picture, another ball, which is exactly the same. It's, it's conducting, but it doesn't have any charge on it is brought towards it. And the two balls attract each other. Now that's very weird because there's no charge on them. Now you know that if you've got um, things with charge, they're a bit like magnets, you can stick magnets together and they'll hold each other against gravity. And you can do something similar uh, with charge. But you can't in this situation because there's no charge on them, but they're still attracted. It's, a, it's a, an effect called the Casimir effect, which was predicted in the 50s and this is a, a demonstration of it in the real world, at a very, very small scale, uh, that happened uh, in the 1990s. So this is a, because there's a warping of space in between the two balls. There's actually more pressure on either side of the balls than there is in between, which causes the balls to uh, come together a little bit. So we can warp space-time. We can warp space, which is quite a frightening idea. And it would be fantastic if we could do that on the big scale. So how does this relate to Doctor Who? Well, obviously there's um, the time travel aspect. But I like to think that a wormhole could possibly be like the time vortex. So you have some sort of passageway that runs behind all of the three dimensions that we know that links to all of the every bit in space. And you could just jump into the time vortex and jump out at the appropriate place. And you need something like a TARDIS or a, a vortex manipulator like uh, the Master uses, uh, or did use on occasion in the Witch's Familiar and the, um, uh, the Magician's Apprentice, uh, the first two episodes of the last season. So, um, time vortex or wormhole could be the same thing. Okay, so is time travel therefore possible? Well, the scientist Stephen Hawking says, possibly, probably not. He said that it's because there are too many paradoxes. If you go back in time and change something, then how did you go back in time and know to change that thing? Because it didn't happen. So to illustrate that, and actually one of the most famous effects is called um, uh, the grandfather effect. If you go in back into the past and kill your grandfather, how could you exist? Uh, an extension of that is a lot of people say, go back in time and kill Hitler. Fortunately, there was a Doctor Who episode about that, so we're gonna see a, a brief clip from it. Uh, or not. 
Do not call for help. This room has been sound screened. You have been found guilty. Justice mode activating. Hang on. This is 1938. Too early. We need to go later in his time stream. Something else. We've got incoming. On screen. see that episode, you're wondering why there are all these people in a submarine. Um, I can't help you. <laughs> so obviously time travel is a big theme and time paradoxes are going to come up quite a lot. It, this goes right back to the very, very early days of Doctor Who. Um, are there any fans of classic Who in the audience? Yes. Good, good. So you'll all remember um, The Monk. Uh, or Mortius, as he's been called in the Big Finish audio dramas, played by Peter Butterworth, from, uh, you probably recognise from the Carry On films, uh, in the episode The Time Meddler. And he wanted to meddle with time and change things. He was, he was actually a collector. Uh, he liked to appear on the scene, steal things uh, for his own private collection. Um, and uh, there he's trying to sneak into the TARDIS, uh, the Doctor's TARDIS. Um, he wanted to, in the Time Meddler, um, uh, affect the history of, um, of Britain and the world uh, by, I think, giving the Norman invasion uh, heavy artillery, uh, which would have ended things uh, in a very strange way. Other examples of um, problems, or in fact, paradoxes uh, that happened, uh, were in The Sound of the Drums and The Last Time Lord. Uh, so this is the inside of the TARDIS that the Master stole at the end of the universe, took it back to now, um, but provided a link with the last humans and the current humans, uh, and so irre irrevocably altered history. Um, 
causing a paradox because the final humans could never be the final humans because they came back to our present and killed all the current humans or uh, a percentage of the population. And uh, the doctor says the only way to do that, to sustain that paradox, was to use the heart of the living TARDIS, uh, which is what's happened here, why the TARDIS looks so different, why the console looks so different. And when you, if you watch that episode, you can hear the cloister bell, which is the, the dong that the, uh, the TARDIS makes when it lands after it's made the wheezing noise. Um, you can hear it just sort of beating, uh, like, a, like a heartbeat, or, or like a... Uh, it, like that it's in pain and desperately trying to remove itself from this horrible situation. So uh, that's, a, that's a paradox and how you solve a paradox. Another one is monsters under the bed in the episode Listen, where the doctor has this feeling that there are these creatures, these monsters, um, that he always feel are just beyond uh, your eyesight in, in a place where uh, you, you can't see but you can just feel. And uh, it's actually uh, because of a childhood memory that Clara put her hand on his leg when he stepped out from underneath his bed, uh, which causes a paradox because they were investigating it because um, Clara put her hand on his leg, and it's totally cyclical. Um, there are actually creatures that try to clean up these messes in the Doctor Who universe. Um, in Father's Day, Rose Tyler wants to, for some macabre reason, go back and see her father be run down by a car and not being able to stop, uh, not being able to sit by and watch that happen, she dashes into the road and stops him being hit by a car and these things called reapers appear and they gobble up, they try to gobble up the whole universe to try and reset it because this paradox, this one event, this seemingly quite innocuous thing to do, um, Rose saving her father, actually has huge repercussions and obviously the biggest creature, if you can call them that, that try and prevent these things are the Time Lords. A uh, wistful looking Time Lord there, uh, standing just outside the capital city of Gallifrey. And of course the Doctor would never do and that. that. He's on many occasions said that crossing into established events is strictly forbidden. This is the first law of time travel, except for cheap tricks. Uh, in the episode Smith and Jones, uh, where he meets her before he meets her, quite deliberately. So that's time travel. But the TARDIS and the Doctor don't only do time travel, they do a fair amount of space travel too. Because the TARDIS is a time machine, but it also travels in space. Now, if you were to Google spaceship, you get this. They're all really boring, aren't they? I find them repulsive, many of them. They all look like ships. They all have to be aerodynamic. It's the beautiful thing about this, the TARDIS, and I'm very pleased to have this gorgeous handmade TARDIS here. I think round of applause for our friend who made that. <laughs> That's one of the things I love about the TARDIS, is that it is not like these things. In fact, that's, and it really sort of typifies everything about Doctor Who. It's not like so many sci-fis where you can solve all the problems with a gun. See, there were a couple of episodes where the Doctor, I'm particularly talking about the power of three, where the Doctor solves the problem with a sonic screwdriver. But anyway, um, but the Doctor uses his intelligence to solve the problems, rather than just having a fist fight like Captain Kirk would have done. I'm not going to get into a discussion of whether Star Trek or Doctor Who is better, because obviously it's Doctor Who. Um, uh, so, yeah, so solar planets. 
This is a beautiful view of the Milky Way here, taken by a friend of mine called Babak Chafreshi. You can see lots of other images on his uh, The World at Night website. There are hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy, and there are more than that number of galaxies in the universe. So there are many, many stars out there. We see the stars, but we don't see the planets. Well, actually, now we've started seeing these planets. They're very difficult to see because they're a very dim thing that doesn't shine any light of its own next to a very bright thing. But uh, some astronomers in St. Andrews said that in our Milky Way, there are as many planets as there are stars. Now, that doesn't mean to say that every star has planets around it. And actually, we know that many stars have multiple planets going around them. So there's the potential of 100 billion planets out there. Um, so let's narrow it down. Let's narrow it down to habitable planets. What do I mean by habitable? Okay, well, there's this concept we have called the habitable zone. And uh, that's a distance away from a star where water could exist as a liquid on the surface. So the Earth is just about the right distance. It's, uh, we often call it the Goldilocks zone. It's, it's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's just right. Uh, but actually I think it should be the baby bear zone, personally, because it was baby bear's porridge that was just right, and bed that was just right, anyway. Um, so uh, if you, in our solar system, the Earth is just right, Mars is just too cold, uh, Venus and Mercury uh, are too hot because they're too close to the sun. Actually, Venus has got a lot of other problems. Um, it's got clouds of acid and a very, very oppressive atmosphere, so we just won't go there. So what are these exoplanets like? I thought I'd look at real exoplanets and see if I could find planets that the Doctor has visited. Okay. So last year, uh, Earth 2.0 was discovered. Um, Kepler 452b. And this is an artist's impression of... Uh, so this is uh, Earth here, and this is Kepler 452b here. Some planets have very, very boring names. So Kepler was the name of the spacecraft that found it, and it was the 452nd planet to be found. A bit boring. Anyway, um, so Kepler 452b uh, is a bit larger than the Earth. The sun that it's going around is very much like our sun. Um, it's actually a bit older than our sun. Um, it's probably about a billion years older than our sun. Now, our sun is about four billion years old. So uh, it's, it's in middle age. It's not coming towards the end of its life, but it's, it's uh, a little bit more advanced. So people thought that this as, as two, Earth 2.0. Um, okay, well, I thought in Doctor Who, Earth 2.0. Well, the planet of the Cybermen. Mondas, the 10th planet. Does anyone ever remember the, the episode, the 10th planet? And then, um, well, I personally like Tomb of the Cybermen better. So if you're going to see uh, one of the very, very early Cybermen episodes, see Tomb of the Cybermen. Patrick Trouton and Fraser Hines, um, there are a couple of looks to camera where the, the play between them, you think there was ad-libbed. It's a very, very good episode. So, Mondas, the planet of the Cybermen. When I saw that, um, I thought instantly of Pluto. It looks very, very similar to Pluto. Now, Pluto is very much not Earth 2.0. Pluto isn't even a planet uh, anymore. Pluto is a dwarf planet. Uh, Pluto and its largest moon, Charon, actually orbit around each other. 
It's one of the reasons that we um, stop Pluto from being a planet. Uh, they orbit around each other. Its moon is very, very large. Um, but this is a, a beautiful view that the spacecraft New Horizons, which had been traveling for uh, nearly 10 years, it set off in 2006 and took this picture in July last year uh, of Pluto. Pluto is very small. It's about a fifth of the size of the Earth. It's about uh, one five hundredth of the mass of the Earth. So it's, it's very different. Uh, but it has this beautiful heart shape here. Um, but it, it also has a really, really strange looking structure. Uh, so this heart shape, what is it? We see things like that on the moon where the lava flows. This isn't lava flow, this is actually frozen nitrogen. But it's, it's very young, and I say very young, it's not like 10 years old, it's 10 million years old, but that's young in comparison to the age of the solar system, which is four and a half billion years. Um, so it's quite young, but it's featureless. You know, it's very, very smooth. So it looks like there's uh, something beneath, like the, the interior of Pluto is quite cold, but it still has some, some sort of heat, just like the interior of the Earth does, where all the, the magma and lava come from. Uh, so it has that heating up uh, nitrogen, and it forms little uh, convection currents here, little, uh, little bubbles and cycles of uh, liquid nitrogen. When it gets to the surface, it freezes. And actually, zoom-ins of uh, Pluto has found cells, has found patches of um, this nitrogen where it's frozen on the top. Um, this area here has mountains of frozen water, the type of water that we know, you know, H2O water. And they're several miles across each mountain. They're very, very big and they're floating on top of this frozen nitrogen, like glaciers. And actually this whole area is very much like a glaciated region. There are weird things called halo craters over there, uh, which are little pock marks that have uh, water ice at the bottom of them, uh, but around the edge have frozen methane. So Pluto uh, was something that we knew very, very little about. And now that New Horizons has been there, we know more and more all the time about this frozen world at the edge of our solar system. It's 50 times at its maximum further away from the sun than the Earth is. So it's a very, very cold place. I wonder if there are any Cybermen back. Um, so this is what Cybermen look like today. Who's scared of Cybermen? I'm a little bit scared of Cybermen, yeah. Um, this is in uh, the 10th planet. This is what they look like. Who's scared of those Cybermen? Yeah, uh, not many people. You can see like the, the, what the, the designers have tried to do, but that is frankly ridiculous. Um, it's amazing that anyone was scared of those things. Actually, they're very similar to Robo-Men, if anybody uh, remembers the Robo-Men. They were sort of precursors to Cybermen that the, uh, the Daleks made out of people to try and enslave the human population. Uh, but anyway, so the Cybermen are uh, hell-bent on world domination. Um, they assimilate other cultures and form cyber cultures. They want everything to be cyber. If you're a Star Trek fan, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It's almost like the Star Trek writers had watched Doctor Who. And after all, Borg are just emo Cybermen. Okay, so other planets. Frozen world. So this is, this is a planet called barcode name there. Um, it's an Ogle planet, so it was found by um, a mission called Ogle. And uh, it's a planet that's uh, 
about the same orbital distance as um, uh, planet Jupiter is. Uh, it's rocky, it has a very, very thin atmosphere. It's very cold because it's quite far away from its star. And actually the star is a red dwarf star. So it's a cooler star than our sun. So the planet is quite cool. So I thought, what planets do we know about in the Doctor Who universe that are quite cold planets, quite snowy planets? So I thought of Oodsphere, the beautiful planet of the Ood, the peaceful race of the Ood that was enslaved by nasty mankind. Um, so Oodsphere is a, a great candidate. Now, uh, does anybody remember the Sensorites? Sensorites were uh, a, a nice, friendly race of aliens. So uh, Russell T. Davis said that Sensphere, the planet of the Sensorites, was in the Ood sphere solar system, which is why, if you look at the sensorites, they look very much like Ood. They just don't have the spaghetti bits. Um, now, if I was on Ood sphere, I'd be a bit worried about that enormous Saturn-looking planet there. Saturn has an enormous mass, and it's very, very close. That would mess up tides and all sorts of things. So uh, that looks like it's bad news. But I wondered, well, can I find an example of something where there's a big Saturn close to another planet. And I thought, well, actually, I can do something that's not quite the same, but it gets, um, it's, it's, it's quite interesting scientifically. So this is a picture of, I think, uh, Leiden University clock tower. Uh, there's the uh, crescent moon for scale there. And this is a mega ring system. So this is a planet that has rings, that if that planet was at, if we pulled Saturn out of our solar system and put this planet called J1407b in its place, you would be able to see its rings. They would be that big. So this is a giant ring system that my friend Matt Kenworthy uh, discovered. And actually, um, some of the telescopes that I showed you earlier that I've been installing, we're using those telescopes to monitor this, uh, to find when uh, the planet passes in front of its star, uh, because you can see the individual rings as the rings pass in front of the star. And that's the way that you find uh, these planets. Okay. Now this, so this is called the Lex Solar System. And uh, the reason that it doesn't have a barcode name is because the International Astronomical Union, who's the uh, professional body of astronomers from all over the world, they get to decide what things are named, launched a competition last year for naming extrasolar planets. And they had all sorts of different um, solar systems and people could vote. And this solar system was called the Lick Solar System. And it was the, this planet here, was the very, very first exoplanet ever found in 1992. And it is orbiting a star that is nothing like the stars that I've shown you up until now. It's a neutron star. So that star was a very massive star, probably 20 to 30 times the mass of our sun. It lived its life very fast. So our sun is, at the moment, 4 billion years old. It'll live for another 4 billion years. This star lived its life a 1,000 times quicker. It lived its whole life in 10 million years, and then exploded in a supernova explosion, very similar to that picture of the Crab Nebula that I showed you. So this star is uh, a neutron star, and it has three planets going around it. Now, if there was any life on those planets, that life is probably not going to be there now uh, because of that colossal explosion. But I wanted to find a planet that was orbiting a weird star like that. And I've mentioned it already. It's Croctor on the impossible planet in the Satan pit. Interesting fact about the impossible planet. 
uh, if you remember that episode. It was aired on the 6th of June, 2006. 666. And it has the devil featuring uh, as a fairly main character. And uh, I think the writer said that that was deliberate. I think the executive said, no, that was an accident. Uh, so um, I'm now going to show you my third and final clip of uh, a really strange planet. Copernicus solar system is a diamond planet. So it's much more massive than the Earth, eight times the mass of the Earth, but it's made of carbon. It's not pure carbon, it's carbon compounds, but there is a lot of carbon possibly in its crust and mantle. And I like to think that this has some sort of plate tectonics um, on it. Now, I don't know if you know how you make diamonds, but what you need to make diamonds is carbon, carbon planet. Tick. You need long periods of time, like planet formation. Tick. You need extreme temperatures and pressures, again, like planet formation. Tick. So there could be diamonds underneath the surface of this. Now, if there were these plate tectonics, and if there were volcanoes on this planet, then I'd like to think that those volcanoes would shower diamonds over the surface of uh, the planet Janssen. But I'm an old romantic. <laughs> right. Um, Another planet. This is a rather weird planet because it's a circumbinary planet. What that means is this planet orbits around two stars. It doesn't go in a figure of eight around the two stars. It goes around two stars in a big circle like that. It's not like Earth, and you probably couldn't stand on it because it's more like Saturn. It's about the third of the mass of Jupiter. Um, so it's a big gas giant. But circumbinary is quite interesting. Two suns. Now, there's a very famous planet in science fiction that has two suns. Tatooine. That's rubbish. I don't care about Tatooine and Star Wars. What I care about is Doctor Who. So, is there a planet in Doctor Who that has two suns? Gallifrey! And look, that poor Time Lord, he must have lost his keys. He's still outside. Okay, right, final planet. This is a test. Who is the real Doctor Who geek in the house? What is the planet with the most complex name in all of Doctor Who? Oh yes, you didn't even need, you didn't even need the clue. So yes, this family, the Slovene family, live on Raxicorico Fallopatorius. 
Now, the only thing that we know about Raxacorocophallopatorius is that it has a purple atmosphere that you can see from space. And I can't find for you a planet with a purple atmosphere that we can see from space because we can't see planets' atmospheres. We can work out what they, the planet's composition is, but we don't know what the atmosphere of the planet is made of yet. There are space missions planned to find, uh, to be able to look at the atmosphere of a planet because that is our best bet for finding out whether the planet has any life on it. So, planets. This is a beautiful infographic that was on the XKCD website in June 2012. And it has all of the planets that we knew about at that time, scaled relative to each other. And our solar system is here. So these are uh, the two big gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn. These are Uranus and Neptune. You can maybe see Earth and Venus as two little pixels and none of the others. So we found a lot of big planets. And actually, now, I updated this this morning, may have been some more planets released. We haven't found 786. We have found 2,108 planets, um, the majority of them outside of our solar system. And actually, there are a lot of planets that, have, uh, that are in a multi-planet solar system. There are 511 that we found that have neighboring planets. So there's still an awful lot to learn about planets. We're just really scratching the surface of what we know. As I said, we can't measure anything about their atmospheres. We know roughly what their composition is, um, and we're discovering more all the time. Now, we talked about some pretty weighty topics tonight, and I wanted to leave you with something profound. But I couldn't think of anyone, anything profound, so I thought I'd then do the quote, always bring a banana to a party. Thank you very much. And so ended Dr. Edward Gomez's presentation. However, he was very kind to allow me to interview him for 20 minutes or so. And uh, we move over to that now. You start off, you had a really, one of the coolest lines I've seen, which is saying, my wife is a professor of astrophysics. Yeah. That's a cool way to start the I always do, because I'm incredibly proud of her. And um, she gets a lot of grief, surprisingly. So she, she was actually in London today giving a research seminar. And she's, uh, you probably couldn't see, but she's, she's quite short, she's five foot two. And um, a lot of people begrudge her being successful because she's a woman, and because she's short, and because she's from Wales, and they they just begrudge her. And so she had a horrible time uh, giving this lecture. So every I'm enormously proud of everything that she's done. So I always tell everybody that that's my wife. So <laughs> sorry. Oh well, it's, it is actually a big problem. But, you know. Yeah, that's absolutely terrible. Yeah. I think it just needs people like us to not be like that and uh, really call people out who are like that. Oh, really? And we've just published the statistics to show that she still Sorry. Oh, yeah, it's 23% or something, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 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 No, it's just it's absolutely criminal. Okay. My wife does, you know, uh, she does a far better job. If I was doing her job, and I'm not, but 
She does a far better job than I would ever do of it. I'm far too disorganised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not the same. Going back to, to Doctor Who, so he loves it in the Tom Baker era. Um, as I said, he got I'm actually a little bit too young to for Tom Baker. Sorry, Peter Davidson was my uh, was my first Doctor. Yeah. the Tardis console. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, with the wrangles on the wall. Yeah. Well, I I wouldn't be an astrophysicist without Doctor Who. Um, I was a massive Doctor Who fan um, when I was a kid, and I was really it was actually a huge shame when in 1989 it stopped. I was really, you know, very, very upset. Yeah, 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 89. And yeah, I was very, very upset that it just vanished. You know, I remember telling my mum, you know, this is going to be on this week. It's going to be on. And it just, you know, there was just nothing. Um, and the reason that I loved it so much was because it was scary. Um, and, and it was on at a time that I could watch it. Um, I can remember that one of the episodes I can remember as a kid was Paradise Towers with. Um, uh, the Richard Briers as uh, the candy man who looked a little bit too like Bertie Bassett um, like a scary Bertie Bassett um, and uh, but the thing I loved about the Doctor is he always solved problems like he saw things as a problem that he could solve by being clever and knowing things and not by um by punching people or by you know using weapons or anything like that basically my mum taught uh when I was growing up, I wasn't allowed to have guns. I wasn't allowed to, like, if I played Cowboys and Indians, um, it had to be, you know, without guns at all and things like that. So it was, that was really nice because I really appreciate that you can solve problems in a non-aggressive way. And that's something that always comes through with Doctor Who. Um, and the, the, the writing in Doctor Who is phenomenal. I mean, everybody, when I was in the 90s, when I was a teenager, people um, took the mick out of Doctor Who for having shaky sets. A little bit like the Liberator being shaky in like Seven as well. And things like that. Um, it was quite like that because also it was something I could identify it was something that was British that in the 90s Star Trek Next Generation came out and although that was you know glitzy and it had effects and things like that I didn't really identify with any of the characters in that um, yeah it's really interesting it's a it's an interview recently um, no it was cute it's going to work out yeah. oh yes yeah and he was talking about the classic and saying that it was the quality of acting and the writing. Yeah. Which means you didn't need that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I watch a lot of classic Doctor Who now, and really the writing is very good. Um, it's just a shame that in the Colin Baker era, the, the controller, I don't know whether it was the controller of um, uh, BBC One, just lost faith with Doctor Who or just wanted it out. Because... The writing was still good, but the, the, the budget was a lot lower, and the costumes they wore. I mean, Colin Baker's costume was just awful. Yeah. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm wearing a train. Sorry, a train. A train. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's a jet waiting. Yeah, <laughs> <yeah, it's not. laughs> 
No, I didn't. No. Uh, so I listened to the big Finnish audio dramas, but I didn't listen to. I didn't read any of the, the any of the novels. In fact, actually, I did because it was very difficult to get videos. Um, so I did read. Um, an an unearthly child, but I don't know if that was Target. So I read some of the because there are there are. I know that Virgin did uh, novels that were like in the same universe, but there were also novels which were novels of the episodes. I remember reading a few of those. I don't know if they were the equivalent of when I was watching the They were the equivalent of videotapes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. And is there anything else you could say? What would what do you think now that Doctor Who is now? Because you obviously still love it. Do you think that this is firing? children to become scientists to look at that world because you talked about the like, space exploration and it's so sad that we're not doing that yeah you're right you're right do you think Doctor Who's going to help I really hope so I, a big part of my job is trying to excite kids and a, like a general audience about science to make them think that actually science is something that they can do or not make them think that really make them realise that asking questions is about the simplest part of science. That when you boil science down, it is oh, just fine. about asking questions. Yeah. And really, that's something that the doctor does, you know, fantastically well: is asking questions and finding answers to those. And they might not be the best answer. It might not always be, you know, that's that's what science is. You don't you you find the best answer to the problem, and you call that the truth. But actually, it's just the best answer. And the best scientists are the ones that go, "This is what I think is the answer." It might not be the answer. But we'll go with that because we don't have anything better at the moment. I think Doctor Who does that really well. Thank you very much. That's a lovely way to end the interview. Doctor Edward Gomez, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And thank you once again to Doctor Edward Gomez for allowing me to put his presentation up on the Doctor Who on Target podcast. And the other thank yous, of course, go to Penguin Random House. Uh, please go out and buy the Target novelizations or any of the other Doctor Who books, in fact. And also the fabulous BBC audio range of the Target adaptations. And also, of course, a thank you to Smerin's Antisocial Club for allowing us to use their Doctor Who theme tune version. Um, please join us next time where we will be reviewing another classic Doctor Who Target novelization. Goodbye.